Hello, welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast. I am your host, Dave Christensen. Uh, it's nice to have you with us again uh, for another episode. Um, so, uh, I don't know whether I've introduced Bright Club much recently um, in previous episodes, but uh, I'll just do that quickly again. So, this is a podcast um, where we talk to some people who've performed at our comedy show, because mostly what we do is run a comedy show, and those comedy shows have researchers doing some stand-up comedy about their work, and uh, and they make their work really funny. And um, then we get them over here into the Bright Club podcast, and we uh, sit them down and get them to talk to each other. One previous performer interviews another previous performer and finds out about them and what they do and how they got into their research and what their research is, really, beyond just the jokes about it. And, um, and yeah, this is another of those episodes doing that. And this particular episode, we have uh, Grace Andrews being interviewed by Shona Waddle. Uh, so, yeah, um, Grace is a, a climate scientist. Um, yeah, she studies climate change and stuff to do with that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a good interview, it's a good chat, um, Grace's set was great, so uh, it's nice to hear all of that again, um, but I would like to just give you a little warning quickly before we start, um, there is a, a fair amount of swearing, I don't normally give warnings about language content, but um, this one used uh, quite a few instances of uh, the F word, and um, yeah, I just think maybe if you have any kids with you listening or something, you might not want to let them listen. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, climate change can be quite a sweary topic, as uh, you'll hear in this episode. Anyway, I don't want to take up any more of your time now. I will uh, hand over to Grace and Jonah. So, uh, yeah, enjoy the show. Welcome, Grace. Thanks, Jonah. So you are a uh, researcher in climate change. Would you be able to explain... What motivated you to pursue this line of research? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it. Um, I think it starts started back when I was in high school. You know, and not to like give away my age here, but you know, when I was in high school is when um, Al Gore's "An Inconvenient Truth" first came out, and it seemed like at the time that that was like really this sort of like new frontier of of science that was urgent and important. And, and we still didn't know very much about. So, you know, I got interested in it uh, back then, and then I went to college, and I just, I kind of kept going with it from then. So you, and then you, what did you study for your undergraduates? Uh, I was an earth science major, uh, but I, I did similar stuff then that I do, that I do now. Yeah, so then, and then you went on to do a PhD. Did you do this straight after the undergrads, or did you? No, I don't think so. Yeah, well, I, I took some time off to just work as a barista for a couple of years. I, I, I don't know, after college, I kind of had burned myself out on, on laboratory work and things like that. And I, I wanted to just relax a little bit before I jumped into a PhD. So it was fun. It was great. I moved to Chicago for a couple of years. And, like, I worked part-time and in an improv comedy club. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So then... Did you, did you study for the, your PhD? I got my PhD at Northwestern University, which is also in Chicago. Um, yeah. And you studied the ice, ice caps melting in 
Greenland. Yeah, that was a part of what I did. So I, in general, I worked on different uh, glacial environments. So I did some work in Iceland and some work in the, on the glaciers in New Zealand. And then the last few years of my PhD was uh, a multi-year study on the Greenland ice sheet. Okay, so would you be able to kind of summarize what your main findings were in your PhD? Yeah, so my, my PhD um, it was looking at climate both on sort of long, what we call geologic timescales, so millions of years, as well as anthropogenic climate change, so sort of modern, you know, 100-year timescales. I, I looked at climate on, on both of those. And um, so in terms of anthropogenic climate change, uh, that work was mostly in Greenland. And, and really what we were looking at was there's some preliminary observations that suggest that water that's actually coming out from beneath the Greenland ice sheet. So the Greenland ice sheet is melting, and all that water sort of gets channeled down beneath the ice and comes out as what we call subglacial discharge. And that water turns out, uh, at least in some locations, uh, is really concentrated in carbon dioxide, or CO2. And so when it comes out from beneath the Greenland ice sheet, all that CO2 that's trapped in that water can then be released into the atmosphere. And so we're interested in uh, you know, how widespread is this effect um, and what's driving all this uh, concentrated CO2 in the subglacial discharge um, with this idea that if it's, there's a lot of water, uh, or sorry, a lot of CO2 that's coming out uh, in this water when we continue melting the Greenland ice sheet you know, as we Earth gets warmer in the coming um, decades and centuries, then this could be a sort of previously unrecognized uh, contribution to climate change. So my name is Grace Andrews. I am a research scientist at the University of Southampton. And I work out of the National Oceanography Center. And I study climate change. And I love being a climate scientist because I love being uh, actively involved in trying to make a difference uh, for something that is truly a global problem. But um, sometimes I feel like my friends think that they're fighting climate change sort of vicariously through me. Do you know, what I mean? <laughs> you know like um, I think they think that uh, by taking the recycling out twice a month and having a friend that's a climate scientist, they can basically call themselves a climate activist. <laughs> and my parents are actually the worst about this. Um, my parents like to say that they're liberals, but I'm pretty sure they think that their responsibility, their personal responsibility for fixing climate change was done the minute they conceived me. <laughs> yeah, sort of like, um, had some sex, didn't use a condom, world saved, job done. <laughs> so you've done quite a bit of traveling in yeah. your PhD, did you? You must have enjoyed that. Yeah, no, it, that was... That was another big part of why I went into uh, earth, earth science and climate sciences because it's pretty great to get to travel the world and see um, not just sort of the tourist locations, but to get to go to some of the like more remote parts of the countries that you visit. So yeah, I, I had a great time. I, I lived in Greenland for a total of about six months at a research station there. and. Yeah, it was great. The research station was in, based in this really small town of, you know, 350 people. 
and it was a Greenlandic village, so besides from the people in the research station, it was all local Greenlanders. And yeah, it was great to get to live there and get to know some of them and, 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 and really get to see that culture firsthand. Um, and in terms of my friends, you know, given that I will be literally friends with anyone as long as you keep buying me drinks, um, you know, it's a... Uh, um, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> I guess I had too many drinks. <laughs> so I kind of feel that when it comes to climate change, you can have um, like day-to-day -day actions that we would do in our everyday lives to help limit the effects of climate change, mm -hmm. or perhaps there's like big government policies that could have an effect on like big businesses. Yeah. Do you think that these these two would is one kind of more important than the other, or mm -hmm. do they work in partnership to to make change? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I I do think that overall uh, it really change has to come from at the government level and it has to um, it has to really reflect on industry because that that is just sort of where the bulk of the issue lies mm -hmm. but I, I'm, I'm still a pretty firm believer in the power of uh, individual action um, it's certainly true that you know uh, some of the biggest problems are with how everyday people use transportation so Airplanes, for example, if everyone stopped flying around so much, probably we'd have, that would be a good thing, but that's not going to happen. And again, reducing cars, like these would all have very substantial impacts. Um, but even small, smaller things that a lot of people, you know, I if you were to sum it all up, aren't huge pieces of the, of the pie, um, I think are important because they affect people's mindsets, you know. If, if every day you're making a conscious effort to recycle and to reduce the amount of plastic in your life in general, um, then it's something that's just it's present in your mind. And it's, it becomes something that's important to you. And that may help um, in how you vote in the future and what you look for your political candidates to be supportive of. And, and I think all of these things come together in ways that are um, slightly less tangible and, and are more difficult to calculate than just adding up where all the carbon is coming from CO2. You know, it's all kind of ironic anyway because in reality, I'm a terrible person to be friends with. Yeah, I am. Like, you should never hang out with me. Um, and the reason is because anytime I meet someone new and they find out what I do, you know, the first thing they ask me is basically, how fucked are we? <laughs> and I'm a professional, so I can assure you, we're super fucked. <laughs> so do you feel that climate, so that there's sometimes, a certain people think that climate change is not a problem, or that it's not, it's not going to be an issue. Do you, do you, could you be able to explain perhaps why they feel that it's not an issue? I think a lot of the arguments you hear are that, you know, um, right now, and it's true that the earth is a lot cooler and globally than it has been in the past. Uh, the earth has seen hotter temperatures way before humans were on the planet. Um, and Obviously, the Earth was fine. We're still here. <laughs> um, 
And and yeah, and it's just this. It, there's I think there's a lot of doubt that you know we're really doing anything unusual, and that it's really it's it's really all that hot to begin with. Like, is it all that hot? It doesn't seem that hot. We still get snow, and you know the, there are still ice sheets and glaciers and things like that. Um, but I, I think you know, and and all of that's true. The Earth has definitely seen hotter temperatures in the past, substantially hotter temperatures, and higher carbon dioxide levels in the past. That's all completely true. But the thing I often try and emphasize when I'm talking to people, and, and that's really their concern, is that it's, it's, not that, um, it's not that the Earth is getting too hot to handle. It's that it's happening really, really quickly. And that's, that's the key difference, is that the Earth's temperature has never changed quite so fast or even remotely this fast before. That's what we don't understand. And that's what's scary. See, you said in your Freight Club thing that a lot of people ask you the question of, so how fucked are we? <laughs> yeah. And your answer is, <laughs> we're super fucked. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I was, yeah. That was a little bit for comedic effect. <laughs> do, do, what would be kind of a more like scientific explanation of? Of how, how much are we? Yeah, I guess a more scientific answer would be some places are certainly in trouble. Uh, coast, coastal areas, coastlines, and sea level is rising. It's already started to rise, and the projections are really that it, it will continue. So, you know, coastal coastal areas are in trouble, and there are some uh, modeling uh, that suggest other just sort of key areas where the climate, the 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 climate will significantly change, and there might be problems with um, water availability. Uh, and um, so, so, it's you know, it's going to be at least for the foreseeable future. It seems like there's going to be sort of key areas that are in trouble, but um, we're not all super bad. <laughs> yeah, no. In all seriousness, I mean, if we keep doing what we're doing and don't make significant policy changes. We're super fucked, you guys. So, um, you know, I'm not great to hang out with because I'm kind of like the Grim Reaper, you know? I'm, I'm like the angel of death. I just go around spreading sadness and despair everywhere. So you, so you, you finished your PhD and then you went on to do a postdoc mm -hmm. and you moved from America to Southampton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, did you feel like there was a kind of adaption to life here, or? Yeah, you know, it, it's a, it was really surprising to me how much I <laughs> struggled when I first moved here. It's like, you know, because I don't really, you know, the UK is not that different from the US in, in my mind. I mean, we all speak English. You know, yeah. you can go to H and M to buy some clothes, like things like that. But yeah, I mean, there were a lot of a lot of. <laughs> I spent a lot of time sort of wandering around being like, okay, where do I buy food? <laughs> the grocery stores are different. <laughs> Which one of these shops will sell me? You know, and, and, and you don't know anyone, so you don't have anyone to ask. So it's a lot of time spent on Google. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was, it was harder than I thought it was going to be. How, how many years have you been here? Uh, just one? Yeah. Yeah, I've been here almost exactly a year. Okay, so you... Your PhD is in, I, from the Bright Club talk, got the impression, so please correct me if I'm wrong, that it's involved in, in chemical weathering to remove CO2 yeah. from the atmosphere. Very good, yes. <laughs> yeah. 
So would, would you be able to explain um, the kind of idea behind this project and what you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, so, um, so chemical weathering, uh, it's, it's a natural process that just happens all the time all around us. And basically it's just uh, the dissolution um, of rocks and minerals by, by water. So every time it rains and that rain falls on a rock, some amount of chemical weather is happening. So it's completely natural. It happens all the time, everywhere, and it's been going on since you know water first started raining in the atmosphere. Um, and chemical weathering, that process, um, is what controls climate over very, very long time scales. So uh, it, it's what's sort of kept the Earth at a habitable and stable climate over, over uh, yeah, millions of years. And so the idea behind my current postdoc work is, is can we take this natural process that's happening anyway and just try and speed it up so that we're removing um, CO2 from the atmosphere faster, you know, moving it from the million-year timescale to the decades and century timescale. And, and, and so it's, it's trying to engineer this natural process so that we can hopefully try and uh, make a dent towards fixing climate change. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting project because, you know, there are a lot of uh, proposed uh, solutions to climate change out there. And some of them, you know, if you read about them, sound just nuts, you know, like, and, and there is scientific backing behind them, but for sort of an average person, you know, you might read that, like, oh, we're just going to shoot some kind of dust into space and it's going to reflect light and, you know, or like whatever, and you're uh, like, is that real? <laughs> and so what's nice about this is it's something that, uh, you know, it's already happening. It's, it's not sort of weird or scary. It's, it's, um, we're hoping that it's a technology uh, that will be easier for the public to uh, support because it, it's not any kind of sci-fi, you know. Yeah. And we understand it pretty well because we've been studying it for geologic timescale climate questions for decades already. So we have a lot of information and data on how it works. Um, yeah. So what would you be, what would you, how do you speed up the, the chemical weathering? So the primary thing that we're doing is um, we're taking, so right, so rain falls in water and, and that actually removes CO2 from the atmosphere. Not very much, but it does. So what we're doing is we're grinding up highly reactive rocks so uh, specifically rocks like basalt, which is what um, volcanic islands are made out of. Hawaii is made out of basalt, for example. And we're grinding that up into a really, really fine powder, uh, which creates a very reactive surface area. So now there's a lot of uh, surface area for water to interact with. Mm -hmm. And we're tilling it into agricultural soils. And the idea there is that there are also all these interactions with vegetation that can also help speed up that dissolution process. So, um, for example, uh, vegetation themselves release these organic acids into soils, and hopefully it's kind of intuitive that acids help dissolve things. <laughs> so you add it, you're adding these acids, um, and that can help dissolve the rock. Uh, you also get um, just really high... 
Um, and I say we're, we're focusing on areas where um, temperatures are higher. So I've got, uh, we were studying sites like Malaysia and things like that because the temperatures are higher. And again, the higher temperatures help speed up chemical reactions so that that dissolution happens faster. So there's a bunch of different things going on, but the, the premise is we're taking this really fine powder and spreading it across the land. <laughs> so this, it would be um, incorporated in, in the soil that just farmers would use? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's another one of the really nice aspects about this technology is that it doesn't take any additional space on the planet. Like, we're already using that, that land for agriculture. So we, it doesn't take any additional space. Um, and the infrastructure necessary to implement it is basically equipment that can grind rocks, which we already have in every quarry on the planet. So, so it doesn't actually require um, additional infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and there are all these interesting co-benefits. So uh, there are studies coming out showing that when you add this rock powder to soils, it releases a lot of important uh, plant nutrients into the soil. So it can actually help uh, uh, help with crop growth and Hopefully, um, this would have a co-benefit co of um, helping with food scarcity in, in, a, in, a, in a world in the future where that could be a problem, so. Um, and maybe at best, I'm kind of like the Grim Reaper for the future because, you know, I don't want anyone here to panic. Um, in reality, you know, everyone here, you're all going to be okay. You know, everyone here, you're all okay provided you don't move to a tropical island nation anytime soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm the Grim Reaper for the future because, you know, we're all going to be okay. It's just that our kids are screwed. Yeah, like if you have kids, they're the ones that are screwed. And also, if you're not actively trying to do something to fix climate change right now, your children's lives are ruined and it's completely your fault. <laughs> Scaling all these different technologies up and 
and really realizing that it's it's not a single technology that's going to fix the problem. You know, it's it's pulling all these different things together and then making like massive changes in just how we um, look at the world and the kind of energy that we want. So. so, do you do you have any thoughts about what you might do when you finish the postdoc here? Mm. Are we if you want to stay in research or do you want to move to um, a kind of different area but still stay in the, the climate change kind of region? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've kind of been going through my career, not not really sure where exactly I wanted you to go, but I just keep following the interesting research um, and, and, and just trying to have as much fun with it as possible. Yeah. Um, and so, the, but the more I'm in, 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 in science, the more it seems just like impossible that I would ever leave. Because every time you, you answer a question, 10 more pop up, you know, and, and you want to be the one to answer it, right? So I'll, I'll probably try and stay in academia, um, get a faculty position somewhere, um, and keep pursuing yeah, the questions that, that come up. Is, is there are more opportunities for climate change research in the U.S. compared to... <laughs> it depends on who the president is. <laughs> That's not a joke. <laughs> That's real. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, so, um, it, yeah, it fluctuates all the time, truly, with, with funding opportunities. I mean, obviously, the U.S. is really big, so there's a lot of universities there, and there's, mm -hmm. a, lot of, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, but... Yeah, different. Yeah, I'll, I'd probably like to go back to the U.S. eventually, just to be closer to friends and family. Yeah. But so far, I'm really enjoying it. So, how do you turn that into fun party chit chat? <laughs> I like to try and focus on the more uh, interesting and fun parts of my job. So I get to travel a lot to some really awesome places. But before we get into that, let's just do climate change in one sentence. So climate change, we humans add carbon dioxide or CO2 to the atmosphere. Um, that warms our planet and bad shit happens. <laughs> that's all you gotta know. Um, and so one of the bad things that's happening is that we're melting the Greenland ice sheet and our sea level is rising. And when I was doing my PhD, I had the opportunity to go live and work in Greenland and study the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. Now, um, this, I did this topic of sea level rise and ice sheets melting. It's becoming talked about more commonly in the media. So I thought I would just let you guys know that um, you, know, you might start seeing these images of the ice sheet and maybe even the, the researchers, the intrepid researchers who go out there to, to study these things. But you can take it from me. When you see these images, these documentaries maybe, um, it's kind of like Facebook. Yeah, um, it's like Facebook because you know, um, you know how you only put your best photos online and you crop out your ugly friends. Yeah, we do the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah. No, we only put the best things online. Like you guys will never see the photos of these intrepid researchers, like digging holes into the frozen soil to shit into you for the next three months. No, you're never gonna see that. Not a chance. Yeah. You guys, the public, it's all just saving drowning polar bears and stuff. Yeah. So if we if we do manage to make a big impact say, in the, the next ten years, this is perhaps probably quite unlikely. <laughs> but but would it take a while for the Earth to recover? 
Yeah, this is something um, it's, I don't like love talking about because it's, it's a negative thing, and I, I always want to give people optimism about climate change. But part part of the problem is that sort of like the wheels of climate are already in motion. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that even if like tomorrow we just completely cut all of our CO two emissions and we only used you know green energy and, and we just completely changed how we're doing everything. Um, the climate climate change would continue to happen um, into the future because um, yeah some of these processes are just already they're already happening yeah. so uh, sea level for example would continue to rise because the the ocean is is warming and expanding so you and um, ice sheets for example would continue to melt uh, one way to think about that is that you can't, uh, you can't so easily rebuild an ice sheet as you can melt it because you know if you have something that's really tall, it's really cold at the top, and that can help keep things cold. Yeah. But if you melt an ice sheet and you lower that elevation, um, it won't just grow because now you know you're starting at a warmer place. So you'd actually have to get the earth colder than where we were before climate change was started to get like the ice to be cold enough to start rebuilding itself. So there are all these things that are just, maybe that was explained terribly, but but um, there are all these things that are already happening um, that that we can't we can't reverse just by. Uh, so it's, it's like how it's it's easier to knock a building down than it is to build it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we should definitely stop it from getting worse. Yeah. Yeah, and there's this idea of negative emissions too. So actually, the technology I'm working on, enhanced chemical weathering, is it's it's conceptualized as what we call a negative emissions, you know, technology. This idea that not only do we have to stop dumping more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but we also have to invoke technologies that actively remove it from the atmosphere. Um, and and so that's that's really those are the two two ideas that we we really need to think about. It's not just stopping what we're already doing, but actually trying to go backwards a little bit. But, um, so nowadays, I work here in Southampton, and I'm doing something slightly different. I am working on a geoengineering project. So we are trying to use a natural geologic process called chemical weathering, which is a fancy science way of saying dissolving rocks <laughs> to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And um, to try and do this, we have to go to a lot of effort to make sure that our samples don't get contaminated. Um, So we do all of our work in what are called metal-free clean laboratories. And um, we have to wear these special suits. So you can imagine these are sort of like full-bodied white plastic suits. Um, So can I get a, a cheer or a clap or something from everyone in the audience who has seen the classic Christmas film, A Christmas Story? Um, the people in front, those are my friends. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, okay, so just them. Um, <laughs> check my references before I get on stage. And you, you work in labs which are metal free. Yeah, yeah. So you have to use these um, special suits, the bunny suits. The bunny suits, yeah. yeah.
<laughs> is there, so why do you have to use methyl free labs? Yeah. <laughs> is it because the methyls react with what you're studying? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, let's see. The way that we measure this process of chemical weathering, for example, in my postdoc, uh, and the amount of CO2 that chemical weathering is pulling from the atmosphere is we look at the we look at the chemistry of soil water, river water, and things. Essentially, when that rain falls down and dissolves rocks, all that ends up in a river system somewhere in soil water. So when we're trying to understand what's happening, we focus on that river water because that's the sort of product of the reaction that just happened. And, and we study um, elements like calcium, for example, uh, to look at the extent to which that reaction has happened. And uh, calcium is, is a metal. And, and so it's really just about the fact that, um, yeah, we, we're just trying not to contaminate our samples. <laughs> um, but yeah, so some of these elements that are, are metals that people don't really think of as metals, you know, yeah. So you, you work in these metal-free labs, but we have metal in us, so the calcium ions, I know calcium is really important and um, the skeletal system, mm. and some of us have like so I've got tongue, I've got tongue piercing mm. and like ear piercings. So do does this do you have you have the, the bunny suit on? Mm -hmm. um, so does this is this designed to protect you from as well as protecting you from the samples? It protects the samples from you. Yeah, no, the, basically the only point of these bunny suits is to protect the samples. <laughs> it's not really about <laughs> scientists' safety. We are very safe in these labs. But um, yeah, no, the bunny suits are really about just keeping all of your you inside an enclosed space. So um, if you had ear piercings, your ears are completely covered, and so that would be separated. Um, and it, it basically comes down to the only part of you that's exposed is from your eyebrows down to your mouth um, on your face, and that's it. And then you wear goggles on top of that as well, so actually your eyes are, are covered as well. But um, but the, there are other things happening in in the in the laboratories that we work in to help you know keep even that amount of you from contaminating the samples. So these rooms are pressurized so that uh, the air is always um, pushing from your sample towards you and never from you towards the sample. So if you're breathing and things like that, theoretically it's all getting pushed behind you. Yeah. So it's the same thing in, in adaptive cells. So you, yeah. you have to, it's more important to protect the cells from you. Yeah. <laughs> from the cells. Yeah, it really put, it puts you in your place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know that the samples are more important than, yeah. than you. Yeah. Um, so, a classic Christmas film, apparently only classic in America. Um, uh, uh, okay, I will, I'll just summarize the plot for you guys really quickly. Uh, a Christmas story. Um, it's basically it's about this guy, uh, this middle-aged guy. Um, he's married. He's got a couple kids. It's Christmas time, and basically he finds out that he has um, a sexual fetish for um, inanimate objects, 
specifically lamp-shaped like women's legs wearing stiletto heels. I'm not making this up. This is actually a classic Christmas movie in America. It's really popular. It's a family film. <laughs> the kids are given full-bodied pajamas shaped like giant pink bunny rabbits. Now, the first time I saw the full-body suits we would have to wear in these labs, I mean, I immediately thought of this movie. And um, so I started calling them, I started calling the suits bunny suits. And I guess this is, this is one of the cool parts about having seniority in your workplace, is that people just generally assume you know what you're talking about, even when you're just Shit up. Yeah. So I started calling them bunny suits, and pretty soon everyone was calling them bunny suits. And they're still calling them bunny suits, and they have no idea that I just made that up based on a semi-perverted Christmas movie. So if you could say one important thing that I, I should be doing in my life to um, help limit the effects of climate change, what would this be? Oh yeah, that's or maybe we should make it. <laughs> That's a hard question. I mean, so like in, in terms of individual action, you know, stay involved in politics, you know, vote, make sure you know who you're voting for, mm -hmm. be as involved as possible, call politicians, bother them, try and get them to agree with you on your opinions. Um, but, you know, also, you know, I ride your bike more good for you and it's good for the planet yeah and um, I mean I, I also you know limit the amount of beef you're eating that's mm -hmm. that's one that and I think is actually really important but people don't like being told that so much so yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know you don't have to go all the way vegetarian you know you don't have to be a vegan but it would it would actually go a pretty substantial way if, if everyone uh, if everyone just calmed down so we, we have to wear these bunny suits, and we do all of our work, like I said, in metal-free clean laboratories. And by metal-free, I mean it's just it's white and plastic from top to bottom. And I spend about um, ten, maybe ten hours a day in this lab, usually by myself. Um, so you can imagine, I mean, it's like me in my little white suit in this little white room for ten hours. And it's kind of like a cross between the prison that the X-Men built for Magneto and one of those white padded rooms in the 1950s insane asylum. And so I'm telling you all this um, so that you get a little flavor for a day in the life of a climate scientist. It's glamorous. Um, and because I know that you know sometimes scientists have reputations for being a little odd. And, um, you know, I just wanted to say, maybe, give us a break. <laughs> so, that's basically all I have for you guys, but I just, um, I just wanted to say, you know, if you are interested in um, uh, getting more involved in the fight against climate change, uh, and you're, and you're looking, looking for a way to do that, um, a fantastic place to start is where all of my friends started, which is uh, call your local politicians and buy me a beer. So, thanks. <laughs>
thank you for listening all the way through and still being here at the end. Uh, and thank you, of course, again to Grace and Shona for having a lovely chat and for giving me them giving me their time. Uh, stumbling over my words. Sorry. Uh, right. What I need to tell you about though before you go, don't don't go anywhere. Wait. Uh, we've got a show which is only just over a week away on the day of release today, if you're listening to this when this podcast comes out. It is Friday the 9th of March, our next show. And uh, I don't know if you know, but um, the 8th of March is International Women's Day. So um, for Friday the 9th of March, our show, we are having a Women in Research special. So um, we have an all-female lineup at our next Bright Club show. So it's going to be great. Um, yeah, we've got... Uh, We've got a bunch of, bunch of researchers. I'll give you their names quickly now. Uh, we've got Devin Campbell-Hall, Maria Ramos-Suarez, Fiona Willard, Anna Hurley-Wallace, and Helen Littler. And uh, they are covering topics like English and philosophy and psychology and chemical and civil engineering. So um, that's quite a spread. Uh, I don't know that we've had such a wide range of subjects before at previous shows, so that's got to make it exciting. Uh, plus, we've got a couple of great professional comedians we've got um sarah banato is going to be uh, comparing and then uh, lou sanders is our headline act and she is going to be fantastic so um i'm really looking forward to that show and uh you should go and find yourself a ticket now if you find our facebook group you will be able to um find our uh, event page there and um from there you can buy yourself some tickets uh if you're not someone who likes facebook find us on twitter we've got links to the tickets up on twitter um, yeah, just uh, search for Bright Club Southampton wherever you want to search for things and probably you'll be able to find a link to the tickets available on Eventbrite so uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to say um, there is, if you want to like see cool Bright Club people there is a science room, I occasionally plug science room events coming up this coming Saturday, just a few days away there is a science room that is uh, the um, it's questions about sound um, and uh, Bright Club Southampton's very own Nikhil Mystery, the man who does the horrible jokes at the start of each show, he is going to be um, answering questions about sound at the science room. So um, chances are he'll put in some horrible jokes there as well. So come on to the science room at the art house on Saturday lunchtime, Saturday midday, to yeah to hear Nikhil telling us about sound. And uh, probably he'll put bubbles in there somewhere. He loves talking about bubbles. He's always talking about bubbles. Oh, um, a couple more things I just wanted to mention to you quickly. Uh, so there is um, just actually uh, tomorrow night on um, the 1st of March in Winchester, there is a stand-up history comedy show um, organised and uh, I think hosted by our friend Alex Farrow, who has hosted a Bright Club Southampton show before. Uh, so uh, um, I'm going to be going to that and uh, I would recommend you try and get along to it as well if you can, because it will be a fun night. And then um, also, actually, another thing um, organised by our friend Alex um, is going to be a, a Bright Club event in Oxford. Um, so, uh, yeah, if um, if Oxford isn't too far away from you, then uh, I'd recommend that as well. That's, um, that's happening uh, not too far away either. That's going to be on the 14th of March. You can head along to Oxford. Um, and, yeah, I'm sure you can find tickets for that as well if you look up Bright Club Oxford on Facebook. Um, and, uh, yeah... That'll be a fun night as well, but most of all, obviously, get yourself tickets for Bright Club Southampton, our next show, on the 9th of March. Um, yeah, and come say hi to me there. Yeah, I, uh, I'd love to know who's listening to this podcast. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe I'll buy you a drink if you 
tell me that you're expecting me to buy you a drink because of the podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that makes sense to me. Cool. Um, see you there. Right. Bye.